Welcome to Manage to Engage, the podcast from clearandopen.com, dedicated to the evolution of you because businesses grow when people do. Serving leaders, managers, and people who will be, helping you reach excellence in your work and achieve your personal goals at the same time. Sign up for the free course at clearandopen.com. One of the primary governing dynamics of growth is the ability to not know and wholeheartedly embrace, I don't know this, I'm not good at this. And so there's not that contraction, but rather an expansion of going with says, wow, cool, I don't know this. Hi, it's Joseph, and thanks for tuning in to Manage to Engage, the podcast from clearandopen.com. When were you taught how to be a good manager? I know I didn't learn that in public school or even college. Instead, we're conditioned and trained to be individual contributors, often rewarded for the poor project management habits that we develop in the process. Nothing was more important than knowing the answer to a problem, even if we only retained it for a couple of days. Today, I want to challenge this assumption that the act of knowing is the pinnacle of learning and that not knowing represents an inherent deficit because there's incredible power in developing the ability to not know. I offer weekly member webcasts, online courses, and mentorship at clearandopen.com because it's my truth that with the right tools, anyone can eliminate the people, money, and time problems holding them back in business. And I share parts of these webcasts and courses on this show because I want to help you too. If you're enjoying the show and learning from it, I'd love your feedback. If you're listening to the show on an Apple device, all you have to do is open up the podcast app, view the full description of this episode, and click the link to leave a rating and review for the show. Thanks so much for listening. Let's start the show. I want to talk for a little while to try to conclude things as best I can. And I'd love to hear from you about questions you have that are remaining and or what you got out of the course that was most significant for you. That may spur some additional discussion. But I was reflecting this morning, thinking about what to talk about today. And and the oft-used phrase came to me that people don't quit their jobs, they quit their bosses. You guys heard that one before? And what I love about pithy sayings like that is that so often they capture a whole lot of wisdom in a very little space of time uh, without even really realizing it. But there's actually quite a lot to be said about that. You know, why is it that people quit their bosses rather than their jobs? It speaks to how context is more important than content. Right? It's a, a complex philosophical idea of context and content, but there it is, just in that one idea. The same way people listen to how you say something more closely than what you say. That's context over content. So, but when you think about that as a manager, the amount of pressure that is on you that the employee every day is either rechoosing you or not, rather than the job or not. That's kind of uncomfortable, isn't it? Or if you're at the top of your org chart, that the success of your business as it pertains to 
your employees and their performance, which is quite a lot. You know, you could argue everything depends on how good you are as a boss, not how you carve up the responsibilities and what tasks you give them, what jobs there are to do, but actually how you are as a boss. That's pretty intense. It's intimidating. And then you add on to that all that training we got on how to be a boss and, you know, beginning in high school and certainly in college, because knowing how to be an employee and how to manage employees is, you know, some of the most important things in our world. Of course, it would be part of the compulsory curriculum of any mainstream education. No, not at all. In fact, it's not only neutrally problematic, but all of our years of education train us to be individual contributors and get stuff done. We're not even trained, not only not in the skills of management, but we're not even trained in the thinking of management. You know, I remember in my education, I remember the first big paper we wrote, it was the Endangered Species Report. I think that was sixth grade, seventh grade. And you had to submit a plan like this was this was the animal I've chosen, and uh, and here are the sources I'm going to use. And then there was, you know, a couple of weeks later, an outline was due, and they really walked you through the whole process. That's cool. And then I don't think they ever did that again, right? And so, in other words, there was nothing guarding against you project managing your work terribly, right? In college, I would see all these people bragging about the all nighters that they pulled. And I never understood why they were bragging. Oh, I was up all night. I had one. <laughs> I'll never forget. I had one roommate who read uh, Native Son, big book. Richard, what's his name? I can't remember who wrote that book. Big book, 800, 900 pages. I remember it was going to sleep. It was like 10 o'clock at night. And he was uh, curled up in a papazon chair with a two liter bottle of Coke and uh, a book, the width of two fists. I said, what are you doing? He said, I have a test tomorrow on this book and I haven't read it. And he was going to stay up all night and read the book. (laughs) And he pulled it off. Of course, you don't retain anything that way very well, but obviously it didn't matter. But that kind of behavior is rewarded in us from very early on. Because why? Because the results you produce, being able to pass the test or write the paper is more important than the how you arrived at that content over context, you see. Or, you know, if you're in a uh, class and the teacher calls on you and asks you to, to answer a question and you don't know the answer, well, that'd be considered a bad thing in content. But the, the way you related to that you don't know and what you did with that I don't know. That's really where the juice is. I don't know and I really need to look at my study habits or I don't know and I'm incredibly curious to find out. Here's five questions I have. Here's five things I could do to find out. You know, the, the relationship to that I don't know, that's never rewarded. So we're What's inculcated into us is that I don't know is bad and knowing is good. And hence you have a society who's terrified to be vulnerable 
because anytime you come across the threshold of your limits, limits of your knowledge, limits of your skill, limits of your awareness, there's this contraction that happens of, oh no, I'm going to get found out that I don't know something because you're supposed to know everything. Well, that would be ideal, wouldn't it? And that would be the preference, or at least to never be in a position where you're on the spotlight and not knowing something. But a moment's reflection reveals that the moments where you're at the threshold of your limits of knowledge, skill, or awareness, that's precisely where you learn and grow. So why do we avoid it again? Shame, as we discussed. So that's where shame resilience comes in. And one of the primary governing dynamics of growth, if not the governing dynamic of growth, is the ability to not know and wholeheartedly embrace, I don't know this. I'm not good at this. And that's the reality of it. And it doesn't say anything about my value as a human being. And so there's not that contraction, but rather an expansion of going with says, wow, cool. I don't know this. Where do you feel that that connection comes in between how you value yourself as a person what, with what you know, because that's, that's very strong in me. Like if I do, I, if I feel like I don't know something technical or, or whatever it might work, I mean, I'm like, wow, like it hits me right in the shame for sure. But, but I don't know, what are your thoughts on where that comes in? Well, I'm, I'm not 100% sure what you're asking, but let me speak to it and maybe I, I will get to it. I know it's a tricky thing to ask about. So what I would say, the first thought that I had is having a shame reaction is not the problem, nor should that be something you want to avoid, right? So if there's a moment where you don't know something and you feel a a contraction, don't try to not make that happen. That's what Buddhists would call putting a head on your head. Or it's like thinking about not thinking. There's, there's, There's not going to be any results there. So that's what I love about Brene Brown's term. I think she made it up, shame resilience. Because shame resilience doesn't... It's not like shame avoidance or shame immunity or something. It's that the feeling of shame can be there and you're resilient to it. Right? You have the presence of mind to go to be able to feel, okay, some part of me feels like I'm worthless because I don't know this. And I know that that isn't true. Now you're in differentiation mode. So the differentiation is just to realize that it's there and do a kind of self-parenting. So like probably many of you can relate to the end of the day happening, coming and going, and you start to feel kind of crappy because you look at your to-do list and you see how much is still on there. Common disease of our culture. So... You've got some options at that point, right? Oh, uh, I didn't get anything done today, right? We, we say that all the time. I didn't get anything done today. Now, come on. Did you brush your teeth? You, know, you got something done today. <laughs> some days more than others. But then there's this you know, shame. Deep down, there's this shame-based 
oh, I didn't get anything done today. And implicit in that is I'm a worthless human being because of that. And I'd be feeling way better. My self-esteem, my self-image, whatever, would be way better if I'd crossed every single one of these things off gleefully with nice thick lines going through them. So what do you do in that moment? Do you go, okay, well, I feel like crap now, but tomorrow I'll get a whole lot more done. And so let me open up a bottle of something intoxicating and binge watch reruns of Grey's Anatomy. That's one possibility. Or you can take a moment and, for example, do some journaling and write with the part of you who feels like they're a worthless human being because they didn't cross every single thing off. Uh, And or you can look at, hmm, did I commit to too much stuff today? Or you could sit and meditate and actually try to find where your self-worth actually is. Like, where is that? Where is the valuing of myself? Where is that? In my body? Is it in my mind? Where is that? That could lead to some interesting things as well. You call up a therapist and say, therapist, I've got some workaholic streak in me. Can you help me uh, disentangle my self-image about uh, being valuable as a human being from what I get done in a day? And if they don't get excited about your request to do that, then call someone else. Normally, people don't call therapists with such specific uh, self-diagnoses. Does that help? Am I speaking to what you spoke to? Yeah, um, I I really couldn't articulate what I was asking, but I think that that's very useful. Good, good. Well, that's to me, I appreciate you saying that because it's one of the skills I'm working on because uh, to me, a good teacher uh, can... Can can feel the uh, a, a partially constructed question or a, con- a question in process, and uh, um, you answered the question I would have asked. <laughs> cool, yeah. thank you. Cool, good. I'm working on that. Okay, I I just wanted to say you said the governing dynamic of growth is the what the willingness to be to to not know. Yeah, the willingness to not know and to be resilient to any shame reactions that come up. So okay. that you can embrace the un, the not knowing rather than contracting from it. Does a wanting to know, as a result of that, a necessary component or not? Like the hunger to to know, the hunger to find out. Yeah, I'd call that curiosity. Okay. So would you say that that then the Governing dynamic is the not knowing and being resilient to the shame that you might feel of the not knowing. And then the next step in that is the curiosity. Yeah. And well, what I would say is in, in most cases, you know, as long as the information or the skill or the whatever it is, is actually relevant to you, then to me, curiosity is not something you create. It's something you already are. Okay. A lot of times, the reason people are, are not curious is because they're already in a shame trigger. You know, shame can dampen a whole lot of things, and curiosity is one of those things. So it's like if someone's feeling bad, if you know you expose them in some way, and they're so caught up in shame about, uh, you know, I, I've got a client right now who has major deficits in the way they lead, and. Uh, if and when he's able to actually see it, 
it's going to be crushing. And uh, many people, including myself, have tried to get him to see it. And it's, it, there's so much resistance to him seeing it. It's doubtful or you know, uh, it's tentative whether it's possible at all. And he, he's a destructive force in his business in some ways that he's blind to. And people are trying to get his attention. So the difficulty there is the blind spots are so big and his self-image is so Tom Cruise-ish. Like, I can handle anything. I can do anything. Watch me you know, sprint 100 yards in under 10 seconds with my hands open like he's always doing in every movie. There's this like, I'm super performance man. And so if you show me anything about myself that doesn't fit my self-image, I'll just slip slide. And he needs to be pinned down and have a mirror held up to him. When people behave that way and and act that way, it's usually because they have an immense amount of uh, shame they're constantly running from. And so that's a really tricky thing from an accountability perspective. So how do you get through to such a person without triggering that shame or triggering it in a way that is manageable? But there's a lack of curiosity there. And that's one of the things is like try to try to spur on like, you know, questions like, where are you weakest in the way you lead? What are you, what are you working on the most? Um, you know, if you could change one thing about yourself, what would it be? Those are curiosity stimulating questions. All of, all of which I've tried with him and I've gone nowhere. It's actually possible he's a sociopath. I don't know. Sociopaths are actually quite common that, you know, if you, there's a, uh, they're not, sociopaths are misunderstood. They're not crazy people. That's different. Sociopaths are just um, fundamentally disconnected from the impact they have on people. They, they can't feel it. And they're often very highly functional people. And if you want to have a, 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 a funny and scary read, uh, read John Ronson's The Psychopath Test. He estimates in that book that 20 to 30% of CEOs are psychopaths. Psychopaths and sociopaths are synonymous. And that uh, between 1% and 4% of the population in general. That's kind of a lot, right? That's a lot. So I've, I've worked with someone for a year before I found out that they were a sociopath. Just the wires don't connect. Thanks for listening to Manage to Engage, the clear and open podcast. Join us next week when you'll be a little bit closer to who you're destined to be. Until then, know that Clear and Open is dedicated to the evolution of you because businesses grow when people do. If you want to help the show grow, I'd appreciate you leaving a rating and review on iTunes. All you have to do is open the Apple Podcasts app, view the full description of the episode, and click the link to leave a rating and review. Or you can go to clearandopen.com review, and it will bring you to the right place. If you're looking for more support on your journey, head over to clearandopen.com for even more tools, articles, and free resources. Thanks so much for listening. Bye for now.